Welcome to Discover Energy Work. And I'm Richard Wicks, and today I can't believe it, I am so lucky. Uh, I have probably a much uh, different version to myself, somebody who wants to um, share the uh, experiences that people are having, but on a much bigger bigger uh, way, it's Jeffrey Mishlove. I don't know if you saw my post on Facebook. Uh, I have a rock star interview, the rock being planet Earth. And for me, Jeffrey Mishlove, what he's done for everybody um, in parapsychology, he's been an incredible um, advocate and he's been a very fair advocate. So somebody who's been there um, presenting people information and very much um, in a fair way, I think. And his YouTube channel is called You Thinking Aloud. And when I was doing my psychology degree, I couldn't believe it because it came up. It's like, oh, we're going to have a, a video on you thinking aloud. So we had like a whole whole room full of people watching Jeffrey talk and interview somebody. It's just fantastic. So good morning, Jeffrey. It's good evening to you, though, isn't it? It's good evening here in Albuquerque and good morning to you. Well, it's fantastic to have you here. I'm really, really thrilled. I'm so happy I, to be with you. I've got a, my first question is, is going to be like, um, you, I have to say like a little bit like me and a little bit like the, the people I, um, have uh, talked to in the past, we are in a world where you're going to be rewarded for being a banker. You're going to be rewarded for being an accountant, a lawyer, a doctor, or somebody with great intellect or great you know, ability is going to get many, many more social rewards. Um, from uh, being these, you know, big, high-earning prestige professions. And yet something has led us to say, I need to do this. This is totally different. And, and you've decided something which really it's, um, I would say, it's genre-making in that you've said, okay, this is a, this parapsychology. It needs to be uh, represented in a fair, um, in a fair way. So, what made you decide to do something, what I would argue is kind of socially silly? Uh, yeah, it, it's true. I you know, pursued a, a very unusual path. I have a doctoral diploma from the University of California in parapsychology. It's the only such diploma, to my knowledge, ever awarded uh, at the doctoral level by an accredited university anywhere in the world that actually says parapsychology. But to be fair, there are hundreds of people who do their doctoral research in parapsychology and have diplomas that say something else. Uh, but in any case, uh, for me, I, I've been interested in mysticism and parapsychology and esoteric culture since I was an undergraduate. I did a senior honors thesis at, at the University of Wisconsin in 1969 on uh, the psychology of religious mysticism. Then I went into graduate school in criminology. Uh, so I'd always had an interest in human deviance, and right. yep. I found myself uh, in the psychiatric unit of San Quentin Prison doing group therapy with murderers and, and rapists. And I, I found that um, it was very depressing. Yeah. 
Yeah. I realized I, I wanted to pursue my interest in human deviance, but I wanted to look at the positive side of human deviance, not the negative. So uh, mm. I struggled for months and months to find a, a route to do that. And I discovered quickly, you can study psychopathology and crime Mm. at the university, but there were almost no opportunities to study mysticism, intuition, psychic functioning, the occult, esoteric culture, uh, intuition. So I, I agonized over it for months. I really did. I struggled and struggled, uh, which I think is an important thing mm. for people. Mm. You know, if, if you want to become, I guess the way I put it these days, the best version of yourself, it's mm. worth a little struggle at, at times. And mm. some, sometimes these things only come after some struggle. And uh, I wasn't getting anywhere until one day I knew that I was going to find the answer in a dream. And I went to bed that night knowing I was going to have a dream and then the answer would come to me. And sure enough, I woke up like at seven in the morning and I felt, wow, I have it, I have it. And I had had this dream, but I had no idea what it meant. And can, I can you share out. the dream? What, 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 what happened? Well, here's what I dreamt. I was visiting some friends who lived across town in Berkeley, people I knew, and I knocked on the door of their apartment. Nobody was home. In the dream, I found a key and let myself into their apartment and walked into their living room, smack in the middle of the living room floor. In my dream, there was a magazine. It was called I, E-Y-E. Hmm. And I, I picked up that magazine and was paging through it in the dream when I woke up feeling like, this is it, I have the answer. Uh, so... Yeah. I, what I did is I actually acted out the dream. I put on my tennis shoes. I ran five miles across town, came to this apartment, knocked on the door, and nobody was home. I happened to know that they kept a key under the doormat. So I found the key, let myself in, walked into the living room. There we were, smack dab, right in the middle of the living room floor was a magazine. And Here's an example, I guess you could say, of a dream distortion. It was called Focus. That was the name of the magazine, not I. Uh, but it literally brought focus to my life. And even today, so many, nearly half a century later, I'm still doing the uh, things that I uh, figured out to do when I picked up that magazine. It was the magazine for any of your viewers who have ever been in the San Francisco Bay Area of listener-sponsored radio and television, KQED. And I began paging through it. And at that moment, I had the insight that I could pursue my interests by getting involved in the nonprofit listener-sponsored segment of the media. And which was strange for me because at the time I was this long-haired hippie. I did not own a radio or a television. And even worse, I had this attitude. I didn't believe in electronic media. I felt that mm. anything having to do with electronic media was phony baloney. I wanted nothing to do with it. But at that moment, I changed my mind. 
and I went over to KPFA Radio in Berkeley. You were talking to me about history as an interviewer. That was in 1972. And I I knocked on the door and said, I'm here to volunteer. And they said, uh, even though I had a master's degree at the time, they said, good, sit at the desk, and when you hear the doorbell ring, press this button and let people in the front door, Mm. which I gladly did. And within three weeks, I had produced my first radio program uh, called uh, You Don't Have to Be From Out of Town to Be Psychic. And (laughs) the program director liked it so much, he said, oh, we have a slot for you every Tuesday and Thursday afternoon at noon uh, called The Mind's Ear. And so within three weeks, I found myself sitting across a table with world-class experts uh, who were on their book tours passing through the San Francisco Bay Area and 10,000 people listening in on the conversation. Wow. And that gave me the confidence to create an individual interdisciplinary doctoral program at Berkeley following some obscure rules that were available through the graduate division at Berkeley. If you're already a graduate student in good standing Mm. and you want to write a dissertation on a topic that no department will sponsor, but you can find three professors in different departments to sponsor you, you could do that. And that's what I did. It took me another eight years to graduate, Mm. Mm. but um, I stuck to it. And uh, that, that was, um, really my start i i've got a like a interesting comment because you the um first radio sh- show you did was called mind mind's ear and i am automatically want to replace it with i and then i'm <laughs> back back in your dream yeah <laughs> it, it's like the eye yeah yeah and it's uh, it's so much about the the senses um but i'm curious um to go to the um if i if if there's something there, if we went back to those uh, sensations that you had at that moment of knowing, do you do you remember how that felt? Uh, was it was it a little bit manic or was it yes. like a calm? Or? You could know it was it was an excitement about it, it right. and a sense of certainty. Like I didn't have any doubt that I was going to have a dream that night, and even though I didn't mm. know what the dream meant. I had no doubt that that was the answer. Mm-hmm. I'm, I want to even go back further because I'm curious. You you were interested in these uh, psychic things. Well, there must have been an experience. And how far do we have to go back to to you getting that first experience? If you're if you're open to sharing it, because it you know I remember when I was even before I was ten or or maybe maybe I was eleven or twelve having an experience which I cannot explain. And I'm just curious, was there, like, wait a minute, the world's, what I'm being told about the world's kind of like not exactly the way it is, yeah? Um, And I have this personal experience and everyone kind of glosses over it quickly, you know, just don't worry about that, yeah? Was there anything like that that happened to you? As a matter of fact, yes. Um, When I was 10 years old, Hmm. I used to climb up on the roof of the house where we lived. We had a big two-story house in um, Fond du Lac, Wisconsin. Mm. 
And as a child, I'd climb up on the roof and look out over the sidewalks and the streets and the trees. And I'd think to myself, was it a sloping roof or was it a flat roof? Sorry, I just well, got the picture. It was a sloping roof. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> it was a slow. I managed. Bad I was devil. always climbing. <laughs> I, I could climb up trees. And, yeah. yeah. Uh, so I'd sit up on the rooftop and, and I'd think, how come I'm in this body? Why? How come I'm not in someone else's body? How did I get here? Why oh, am I me? Wow. And I puzzled over that in, mm. as a child, and I think it was a kind of an awakening. Yeah, yeah. And did you ever talk to anybody about it? Like, no. what about the right? No, I never did. Right, but it's I, kind of like I remembered it uh, mm. when I wrote my first book, "The Roots of Consciousness," back in 1975. I I told that story in the introduction to the book because it. I, I recall it's a, 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 it was an awakening of sort. I realized something's going on here. Right. It's like um, it's like questioning consciousness itself or mind itself. Yeah. And and was there some because I was preparing. I'd like to say I I did my due due diligence, but you know I was I'm being so excited for like two weeks uh, to have this interview. And I read the PK man. Yeah. And uh, the PK man for, for the, the listeners, viewers who don't know what PK is, it's called psychokinesis. So we call psychic functioning, I think, uh, a clairvoyance, a clairaudience or sentience and so on. And the ability to physically affect matter with the mind. Um, and that may not be the perfect description, perfect definition, but, um, I hope it'll do. And, um, I was wondering if you had some younger experiences of that kind of thing where something for you was just also quite inexplicable. You know, I began having psychic experiences of my own um, when I was in my early 20s. Right. Not as a child. Um, okay. And what, what, what triggered that? Dreams. It was dreams again. I had a dream. Mm. Uh, it was around the same time in 1970. This would have been 1970, okay. maybe 71. And my uh, great uncle Harry appeared to me in a dream. And it was a very profound dream. He began talking to me in, in a deep way about my life. Oddly enough, using the symbolism of the yin-yang. And the dream was one of those experiences that you would say more real than real. Because when I woke up from that dream, I was crying and mm. singing at the same time. It's the only time in my life that I ever woke up crying and singing like that. And well, yeah, it's amazing. So I wrote home. I said to my parents, you know, how's Uncle Harry? I had a dream about him. My mother called me right away. She said, how did you know Uncle Harry just died? Hmm. So that got my attention. Yeah, yeah. And, then, and that's incredible. Do go on. Sorry, I wouldn't want to cut you. Well, I asked for a memento. 
I, I said, uh, please, you know, could I have an object that belonged to Uncle Harry so I could remember him by? And uh, my Aunt Jeanette sent me a book. She said this was Uncle Harry's favorite book. Now, he, Uncle Harry, my knowledge, uh, is my great uncle. And uh, as a child, I hadn't seen him in 10 years And at that point. Mm. Um, he ran a grocery store. He had a little corner grocery store. And as a child, we'd visit him. And he'd reach into the freezer of the grocery store and pull out an Eskimo pie and hand one to each of the children. <laughs> That's all I really knew about Uncle Harry, although he was, I was told he's a very religious man. Mm. And, but when I got the book, it was a book in uh, Yiddish, which is a language that was spoken by European Jews that Uncle Harry had been. Uh, the family came out of Russia. And so I had to have the book translated. It turned out to be called The Tales of the Baal Shem Tov, who was the founder of the Hasidic mystical branch of Judaism. So even though I never knew it, that uh, was never spoken about in my childhood, uh, you know, my family members, my grandmother and her brother, my uncle Harry, uh, had come from a, a mystical sect of Jews in Russia. And, uh, you know, I eventually learned that there was a lot of this sort of thing that ran in my family. Wow. That's beautiful. So uh, he, he, they passed on something deeply deeply, deeply personal and in a way kind of like a, uh, perhaps to you, an un, 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 untranslatable code. I suppose later you translate it, but I mean, like it's passed on to you. Isn't that profound? Yeah, because, you know, growing up in, in the United States in the Midwest in the 1950s, Jewish families that had immigrated from Europe uh, especially Russia, I think, really tried to fit in. They, they wanted to be not different from anyone else. They'd gone through the Holocaust and I don't know what other persecutions. So growing up, you know, it, it was very, very important just to be like a normal American. And uh, yeah. nothing of a mystical nature was ever discussed in, in my childhood. I only learned about those things after I turned 21. Right, isn't it fantastic? I mean, what I'm what I'm also like um, viewing is this um, generational desire to conform and mm -hmm. to not not rock the boat, to societally be as um, is it white picket fence as you can be, um, and then for you to get that trans, I'd say like a transmission or information from a, from another generation, and then that to be um, in a way, some driving force uh, in your whole life um, from a certain point. Yeah. But, that, but you know, to be fair, I, I came of age in the 1960s. Mm. It was a time of the Vietnam War. It was a time of student protests. Yeah, true. It was a time when people were saying, don't trust anybody over 30. Uh, it was... A, a time where we were questioning everything. And on top of that, 
uh, I was part of a generation of college students who were introduced to psychedelic drugs. And so, you know, I was experiencing altered states of consciousness and frankly, mystical states of awareness because of that as well. It happened to a whole generation of people. Right, right. Which we don't really, we haven't experienced, um, we haven't experienced that. I was born um, in the 60s, mid 60s. Um, so, you know, I guess my parents were sort of experiencing it probably a little bit less, but, you know, also, um, and, uh, yeah, quite different. So, um, this, this experience, certainly these experiences have been, they, they led you in a certain direction, didn't they? Well, I was, you know, I suppose you'd have to say curious and intellectually minded. I was studying psychology and I felt that uh, these things deserve to be studied from a, a, a psychological point of view, from a philosophical point of view, from the perspective of, of the religions of the world. And then I got exposed when I moved to Berkeley to bookstores like they had the Shambhala bookstore on Telegraph mm. Avenue in mm. Berkeley. And I realized here's, here's a whole store. It has nothing but books on esoteric subjects, everything from Buddhism to the tarot. And none of this was being described or discussed or talked about in university classes. And I, I was puzzled by that. Like there's a body of literature here that really got my attention, why we should pay attention to these things. So I, I think I became my goal in life to become a, a student of these things and then to be a, a communicator to the public at large about these realities. Which, which actually I think uh, to a certain extent, um, I, I'm very um, encouraged because you want to get it out to a million people. I think you obviously are, you know, you've been successful, but I, you said a million people and I, I put in my mind, uh, discovering as you were, I want it. I, I want a million people. I want a million people to know about it. Um, not because I'm trying to change anybody. I just want to give them the information. Yeah. So that when, when they're going through an, uh, a gateway experience of opening up, they don't think they're crazy and they're not filled with uh, Thorazine or, or, you know, some medication that they may not actually need. And of course, I'm not doubting that some people need such medications. Maybe, in fact, maybe I could doubt that, but anyway. Um, now, uh, in all these years, and this is like a kind of the silliest question I could ask you, but let me try. Okay, so we're, I'm accepting, you're probably not gonna get it down, but, but in the limited time that's available to us, because I think probably I can talk uh, around a campfire with you for, for hours and hours. Um, the all these experience of uh, psychic functioning and psychics, um, I suppose I'm I'm curious about the one that was a clincher for you that you could sort of say to people, well, people wouldn't believe me, but this really happened. Well, I I think the clincher uh, is a described in a chapter of my book, The PK Man which you referred earlier, yeah. called the San Francisco Experiment. And, uh, you know, I, uh, while I was in graduate school, I learned about this fellow, Ted Owens, who yeah. claimed to have extraordinary psychokinetic abilities. 
Uh, he could control earthquakes, tornadoes, hurricanes, large-scale power blackouts, and amongst other things, he said he could create UFO sightings. And I learned about him from my friends Hal Putoff and Russell Targ, who uh, were already doing research at SRI International in, there in the San Francisco Bay Area, big military industrial think tank, and they were studying remote viewing. It was the early work on remote viewing. Yeah. They were yeah. also doing research with the Israeli psychic Uri Geller, who mm -hmm. I had come to know. And they had been receiving uh, letters from this character named Ted Owens, who basically said to them, you're wasting your time with Uri Geller. I'm the world's greatest psychic, and I'm going to prove it to you, he said. Um, there was a drought at the time. This would have been 1976 in the uh, early February, as I recall. There was a terrible drought, and uh, Ted Owens said, I'm going to end the drought, and you'll know that I ended it he said, because it's going to happen in just a couple of days. There's going to be rain and snow and sleet and hail, and your local newspaper is going to run a story saying that the drought is ended, and furthermore, there are going to be UFO sightings, which is one of my trademarks. Well, all of that happened. And uh, when I visited Putoff and Targ at SRI, uh, they they were all abuzz. They said, you know, look, look, this has just happened, and we're amazed by it. However, we're receiving funding from the CIA, and we can't really associate with a, a, a colorful person like this. We're already in too much trouble for working with Uri Geller, the Israeli psychic, who was also getting a lot of public attention. Uh, they said, you are a graduate, a promising young graduate student, would you mind taking this file off of our hands? Mm. So they handed me this big file of all these letters that Ted Owens had written of many demonstrations. And I began paging through it. And then the following summer, I ran into him. I was attending a research conference in London. Mm. And he showed up at the conference. And the reason he showed up is because people learned about what had happened in California. And there was a drought in London at the time. Yes, 76, yeah, I remember it. Hmm. It was a serious drought in the Very serious. towns are outside of London. People said uh, they, they had to bring in water by truck. And yeah, we couldn't use the hose pipe. We weren't, I think we weren't allowed to take baths and things. It was bizarre. The, the people I was visiting in London at the time said, if you want to have your picture on the front page of the London Times, all you have to do is go down to Piccadilly Square carrying an umbrella. People will think that you're crazy and they'll take your picture and put it in the paper. Hmm. But when Ted Owens arrived in London, he was invited to the same conference for the purpose of ending this drought. The day he arrived, it began raining and pouring so badly that the, the London tube had to shut down. And the, within a couple of days, the newspapers ran stories. The drought is over. So all of this got my attention, and mm. I made friends with Ted Owens. And going through the files, I saw that he had a track record of producing UFOs. He said, I'll tell you when and where, and then it'll show up. So I said, could you do that for me? 
He said, sure, I'll produce a UFO for you. He said, it'll happen within a 50-mile radius of San Francisco within a 90-day window. He said, I'll produce three of them. And you say it like it's almost like he's flippant. He's almost, you know, showing off a certain bravado. Is that the way he was? Yes. And, and the people in England found it very offensive. He was this, you know, booming American, uh, braggadocio type of person. And <laughs> yes, I can very, understand there being a cultural, um, a cultural clash there a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> they, they nearly kicked him off the stage when he tried to speak at this conference in London. Uh, the opposite of the, you know, reserved British personality completely. He was like a, a Pecos Bill or Paul Bunyan, you know, one of these American legendary characters and mm. who would do impossible feats. Yeah, and, I mean, it's, you see, for, I think, um, maybe this is, uh, you know, not in turn, but it's that sort of uh, behavior, like a few years ago, you go down the market and somebody's selling vegetables or, or selling some fish and say, oh, I won't do one, I'll do two. And you can buy this and I'll add this and this is the best price. It's, you know, like bragging that I've got the best deal. Um, and you, you feel like you walk away and you've paid way too much for way too little in the end. So it's sort of probably a cultural thing that it just it, it, it triggers all these thoughts about somebody um, being a, a, a little bit of a braggart, as it were. Well, and this was a problem that haunted him his entire life because he would go around saying, I can end the drought. I can uh, do this. I can do, make UFOs appear. And mm. people would just tell him, you're a crackpot. Mm. And, and then he would say to them, well, I guess I have to teach you a lesson. And he would. And those mm. lessons were very unpleasant. So I had all the documentation about this. It's a he, fascinating book, yeah. He... Um, said he'd produce a UFO for me. And in the middle of the research, as we're waiting for things to happen, I got a very excited call from him. He said, this is going to happen. I can feel it coming. It's going to happen in a few days. He said, there's going to be a UFO. It's going to be seen by hundreds of people. He said, it will be photographed. The photograph will be published on the front page of one of your local newspapers. Wow. Well, that happened like three days later. Right. The Amazing. photograph was published on the front page of the Berkeley Gazette. The UFO was not only photographed, it was videotaped. And the videotape was run on the Channel 9 KQED Evening News. And it was seen by hundreds of people on the ground and in the air because it appeared right over the campus of uh, what was then called Sonoma State College, and now it's Sonoma State University. Uh, the art department was sponsoring an artist named Stephen Poleski who flew an airplane over the campus with smoke trailing out the back, making designs in the air. That was his art form. Totally. And so the whole art department was out there with their cameras taking pictures, and the UFO appeared right in his airspace, so it was seen from the air and the ground simultaneously. At the time, I think it may well have been the best, most well-attested UFO sighting ever. It was day daylight? 
during the day. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. So, you know, that got my attention. And of course, it, uh, when I began talking about it, one of my faculty members at the University of California quit my committee. It was like too much for him. And I was told, you know, don't put this in your dissertation. So, hmm. it, you know, I had to write my dissertation on other matters, but uh, I would say, you know, in my career working with this man, it convinced me that um, people can conjure up things. You know, I worked with Uri Geller, for example. We brought him on the radio, and hundreds of people would start calling in and say, whoa, the spoons are bending, the mm. clocks that hadn't worked for years are running again in my house. Mm. I think that this is a talent that is sort of latent within a lot of people, a lot of people, but it's not discussed. People are afraid to talk about it because as in the case of Ted Owens, you start telling people that you can move objects with your mind and, and they'll say, you know, you need to see a psychiatrist. And, and that's the interesting thing that's happening because um, to a certain extent what's happening is a certain destigmatization of uh, in mental health. Um, and perhaps that may be leading us towards the ability to uh, have these conversations about like I feel this yeah without with less stigma like there's something going on for me I have these knowings and sometimes they're right and sometimes they're, they're not that they're wrong um, but they really catch my attention when they're right they're incredibly right you know um, and um, and that may may well be you know something which is coming what do you think well, in, you know, and during that San Francisco experiment, Ted Owens promised he would cause three UFO sightings. Well, there were only two. Uh, so from right. one point of view, you could say he failed. And uh, there was a time I was on the phone with him, and he was so happy about this amazing UFO sighting. And he was you know, telling me all about it and how great he was. And I said to him, well, Ted, you only created two sightings so far. Mm. You promised me three. And he got very angry. He slammed the phone down yeah. uh, on me. And, and within about 45 minutes, I started to feel ill. I began to get sick. You yeah. get a little scratchy feeling in your throat, and you know, uh-oh, I'm about to get a bad sore throat. It's coming on. And I didn't know what, you know, I just expected I'm going to get sick. And mm. then 45 minutes later, he called me back. He said, Jeffrey, I apologize. I will never do that to you again. Mm. And within minutes, the sore throat went away. Did you, did he sort of, or did you feel, he didn't say I hexed you or I, I no, was sending no. you bad energy. He said, I won't do that. And did you yeah. know what he meant? Did I know. Yeah. And it, and it lifted. It lifted instantly. And it was one of those feelings, you know, when you get that scratchy feeling in your throat, it doesn't normally, in my experience, it doesn't go away. It gets worse. Yeah. And we're into that, that whole area in a way of, uh, of cursing and, and healing in a way, which is, yeah. I mean, healing, I always say, I mean, I, that's been you know, a big part of my life. 
but I always say in a lot of ways, the, the energy healing is PK. Well, what else can it be? You know, uh, whether it's micro PK um, or something else. And maybe maybe I'm saying that to the wrong person, yeah, because I'm sure there's a lot to talk about in in that idea, maybe. Um, But um, certainly, you know, when you somebody comes in and they've got knee pain, and then like five minutes later they don't have knee pain, then something's happened. Um, And uh, yeah, so and I'm also curious. I've got a I've got a I I listened to your um, talk where you just allowed everyone to ask questions. And you said your practice. And because I had an experience, uh, I, I studied and practiced for many, many years uh, with a Taoist master. And you said, oh, well, I just do nothing. And I'm like, well, that's Taoist. That's, that's just perfect. That's like uh, Wu Wei. Yeah, I don't know if you know the, the term. If you, if you need to be anybody else apart from who you are right now, then, yeah, let it go, like just nothing, just be you, yeah, you be you, as it were. Um, so I'm curious, it, was there any uh, Taoist influence or, you know, Asian influence in your, I mean, there's a picture of a Bodhidharma, as I mentioned, when, when I say, has that been an influence for you at all? Well, when I was young, I you know, tried to study everything that I could. I practiced kundalini yoga, I practiced uh, Taoist uh, forms of yoga, qigong, I uh, got involved with tai chi, I uh, practiced uh, several different forms of meditation. Uh, In my uh, youth, when I, you know, once I started all of this, I wanted to, you know, gobble up as much as I could. And, mm. and so I was uh, attending every kind of workshop and seminar uh, possible. And at, at some point, um, I came to realize, number one, I'm not a joiner. I'm not going to, be, you know, become part of some new religion. Uh, and, and I'm probably uh, more of a spiritual dilettante than, than anything else. So I just figured, you know, as you say, I'll be me. I'll just mm. be myself. Mm. But, but you did have an, an experience. I'm, I'm sort of picking up from the PK Man uh, book. Um, you did have an experience where you um, connected with, um, with um, uh, I've forgotten his name, Owens. Owens' uh, um, class, which at the, at the time I imagine was quite expensive, yeah, um, and then you did his class and you connected with his SIs or CIS or I don't know how you pronounce it, but uh, the space yes, he intelligences. Called them the space intelligences, the SIs. Yeah. I, I did arrange to take his training. He came to San Francisco after, well, I'll tell you what happened is that one day he called me up. It was another very sh- profound experience. As I recall, it would have been December 1985, around Christmas. And he said to me, I had been ignoring him 
uh, for quite a while because he had, he had made a lot of claims that were only kind of half true. He, he was going off the deep end. He was trying to declare war against the United States government and reporting all of these poltergeist experiences on Navy vessels. And mm. it was, you know, it was becoming boring to me, but he called me up on Christmas Eve, and he said, Jeffrey, this is the most important phone call you will ever receive. He had that way of talking in a sort of exaggerated manner. Hmm. He said, it's up to you now. You've got to contact the United States government and tell them not to launch that next space shuttle, because if they do, my space intelligences are going to knock it right out of the sky. Wow. Well, three weeks later, the uh, Challenger space shuttle exploded. And that sort of shook me to my bones. Now, I never mm. even made an effort to call the U.S. government and tell them not to launch the space shuttle because I knew, I'm sure quite correctly, they wouldn't pay any attention to me anyway. Mm. But when afterwards when that happened, I realized, you know, I'd been ignoring him for too long. Mm. And so I arranged to take his training program. I figured I, mm. I owe it to myself. Mm. And, and he came to San Francisco and I had a couple of friends. We spent three days with him inside of a hotel room, mostly under hypnosis. He was a hypnotist and he put mm. us into hypnotic trance and gave us hypnotic suggestions. Mm. And at the very beginning, he said, you know, what, what do you want to do with this power? I'm giving you access to enormous power. Mm. What is your intention? Mm. I thought about it. And I, I said, well, I really don't want to do the things you do. <laughs> I'm not interested in uh, not really UFO appearances or earthquakes, tornadoes. Not really Power the success as well, is it? It's like how to make so wait, I, I, how to make friends and influence people. Yeah. <laughs> right. He 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 was you know he lived a very unhappy life to be mm. frank. Yes. I didn't want that for myself, but I said what I want to do is to be a communicator. I want to be able to communicate to the public at large about these realities. Mm. And within six months of taking that training program, I launched uh, my television series, uh, the original Thinking Aloud series mm. back in 1986 on a local cable channel in Marin County, California. Mm. Within a few months, we got picked up by the local public television station KCSM in San Mateo, California. Another year after that, they sponsored us for Uplink on the satellite, and uh, we were out all over North America being carried on over 100 stations uh, for the, the show ran for 15 years. Incredible. So, it, you know, it was successful beyond my wildest dreams. Do you remember that exercise where some, something shifted for you? Or not really. Well, in fact, I tape recorded the entire event. Yes, yes. And I still have all of the audio files from that training program. And in the 
the appendix, as I recall, of the book, The PK Man, which was published some 20 years ago, I transcribed those exercises. Yes, so there they you are. did, yep. Uh, and I even, uh, I have a DVD that's available to people with all the Ted Owens files. We're well, not all of them, but a great many of, of the files have been scanned and uh, audio tape interviews with him and the yeah. original audio files from the training program are, yeah. are available. I make it available to people who are serious inquirers. Hmm. Amazing. So it's, it's available. Now I've got a question for you. It's probably a really difficult question. It might not be, it might be the easiest question of the, of today. Um, but so if somebody's coming from the outside and something's happened, maybe they've, they're having a gateway experience or maybe they're just curious and they say, well, what can I do with this consciousness that's in this body or this mind that's in this body? Um, how should they approach this area? What's your advice to somebody? Here's what I tell people. If you resolve that you want to become the very best version of yourself, mm. which of course is going to be different for everybody, mm. The universe will reach out to help you. It's inspiring. Mm. And, and that's all. You just need resolve. So what's your, I mean, because I'm, I'm so worried about people going off and, and drinking the Kool-Aid of one guru and drinking the Kool-Aid of the next guru and, and becoming yep. scarred. And, and of course, you know, maybe that's part of their learning process, you know, in, in all fairness and honesty. Um, but um, like, I, I feel your your message is so incredibly incredibly uh, to the point. It's it's um, is pithy the right word, but it I mean it's beautiful. Um, how do how does one set a resolve, Jeffrey? Well, that um, that's an interesting question, and maybe the best way I could answer it is to say that it create on the new thinking aloud. YouTube channel, a series of monologues. They're called the In Presence Monologues. And I go through step by step some of the things I did. For example, um, even as a teenager, I learned self-hypnosis when I was in high school. Mm. I had a cousin, my cousin Stuart Cohen, was an amateur magician, and he was practicing hypnosis. And he taught me hypnosis and how to hypnotize myself. Well, self-hypnosis is really just another kind of meditation, mm. but you can give yourself suggestions. I used it as a high school student to, to do well in my exams mm. and, and work beautifully. Uh, I know how powerful it is. So if you want to become the best version of yourself, there are a number of steps to take. The mm. very first step is you want to love yourself unconditionally. Mm. That means, unconditionally means no matter what you think, no matter what you feel, no matter what you say, no matter what you do. And, and, and by that, I mean you can be critical of your behavior. You want to be, improve yourself but you have to recognize yourself as a pure spirit, deserving of your love unconditionally. Mm. And you can begin by giving yourself mental suggestions mm. to do that. Mm. You can also begin by recognizing the same in other people. 
Mm. that every other person is actually just another version of you. Mm. So if you can love yourself unconditionally, you can love other people unconditionally, no matter what they say or think or feel or do. Mm. That you can recognize underneath all of that behavior, and you can disagree profoundly with their behavior, there's still a pure spirit. And that, in effect, we share that same spirit. Now, I go on from there. There, there. But those are some of the initial steps that people can take. That's beautiful. I mean, I, 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 I can't think of better advice. Um, I think I, I sort of love every, the advice that everybody's given that I've asked. But I mean, that's beautiful. And I can also refer everybody to go to the New Thinking Aloud monologues, which is now a, a channel, like a playlist, I imagine. Um, so you could get those instructions and I mean I can just uh, again you know I, I, I think I expressed you know off air my gratefulness at, at what you've done I mean I'm just listening to the interviews uh, with people like Raymond Moody and I mean it just goes on and then I was talking to a friend before I got on air with you oh Jeffrey Mishaf uh, he interviewed um, Prue Joy was it Prue Joy um, many years ago, I'll find the, it's, it's great. He's really been out there so many years. So I think um, I'm very, um, very grateful. I'd like to express our thanks um, for, for everybody and uh, our listeners, uh, my listeners. Yeah. And um, um, yeah, and I really wish you um, millions of uh, subscribers and listeners to the most incredible um, series that you're doing and the incredible work that you're doing. Well, thank you very much. It's, it's been a pleasure to be with you and uh, to share my experiences with your audience. What a great pleasure that was for me to talk to Jeffrey Mishlov, and I really hope it was as much of a pleasure for you. Uh, will you please do me something? You know, sharing is caring. Would you share the episode share your comments and please come to the facebook page do subscribe to the podcast and do subscribe to uh, the facebook page and the youtube channel for me and for jeffrey so discover energy work because new thinking is allowed <laughs>